you want to find your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Today we're going to actually conclude our discussion on sexual morality. As we've been making our way through the book of 1 Thessalonians, we came to chapter 4, verses 3 through 8, which we see God calling his people to walk with him in the midst of a sexualized society. And so we've been talking about what that looks like. And really, you and I need to know how to live with sexual integrity. I mean, we have, we're living in a fallen world. We ourselves have a fallen condition. There is a propensity that is built into us that kind of wants to live in rebellion to God. We want to follow the urges of our body, and that includes in the area of sexuality, and we just crave after sin. So how can Christians actually live with sexual integrity, and why is that important? That's a critical question, and most Christians can't answer that today. There's a guy by the name of Kenny Luck. He is the founder of Every Man's Ministries. He's also the men's pastor at Saddleback Church. And he is speaking on this matter and doing some writing. He defines right now what's happening among Christians in today's culture is what he calls a spiritual malaise. He says, he gives some quotes, and uh, I want to give this one to you. He writes, nearly 9 out of 10 self-proclaimed single Christians in practice are, get ready for this, he says, are sexual atheists. In other words, God has nothing to say to them on the subject of any consequence or at least anything meaningful enough to dissuade them from following their own course of conduct. There is a disconnect between identity and activity. And that's what's happening in our culture. And it's even happening among Christians in the culture. And what is needed is that we have God's view and perspective of what sexual integrity looks like. Timothy Keller, pastor, writes this, if the church is going to see a serious spiritual renewal, especially among the younger generations, we need to present an alternative view of sex that is beautiful, but different than the one offered in the dominant cultural narratives. A view of sexuality that affirms its goodness while placing it within God's intended framework. That is why we're going to take a week to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Beginning in verse 9 all the way through 7-7, we have the beauty of sexual integrity laid out. I mean, God's word is fascinating. And to see just how it's presented to us, it is like food for our souls. And I will tell you, this is absolutely needed. I do not think that I would be a faithful pastor if we didn't address this issue and like in the fullness that we've been doing it. This is our third week on this subject. That's because there is so much confusion. Our country is in a moral tailspin. But we got plenty of Christians that don't even understand these issues. And yet they're spelled out in the word. We need to live with sexual integrity. This passage tells us how that's done. Friends, you need to know that the gospel goes forth when sexual integrity is lived out. So how do you live it out? Well, first of all, let's begin in verse 9. You have to be knowing your new identity in Christ. Here's some verses. We're going to begin in verse 9. Not very popular. Probably going to be skipped in most places. Look at verse 9. 
Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Unrighteous speaks of those who are not right with God, and it's demonstrated by their behavior. He says they're not going to inherit. Inherit has the idea that you receive something by virtue of relationship. Generally, when someone passes away, you inherit. People who are not right with God, who do not have a relationship with Christ, will not inherit the kingdom of God. They will not be involved in the sphere of God's blessing and domain. And so, who are these people? Well, this isn't to be a, uh, an exhaustive catalog, but he's going to start identifying the kind of behavior of those who are living life apart from God. And so he begins. Get ready. He says, do not be deceived, neither fornicators. This, remember our word pornea that we talked about? This is pornos, okay, related. It's where we get our word pornography. It's a broad word for immorality. And it has the idea of any sexual activity outside the covenant relationship of one man and one woman, a marriage, is pornea. And he uses the word here, it's translated in my Bible, fornicators. Those who are experiencing, uh, engaging in sexual activity apart from marriage, fornicators, nor idolaters. These are people who worship any false god. They have a false religious system that they are a part of. Nor adulterers. These are people who are personally involved in sexual activity outside of marriage, and they themselves are married nor the effeminate, nor homosexual. Both of these terms are dealing with homosexuality, where uh, it's instead of the, how God's designed it, male-female relationship, it's same sex. And when you see the word, in my Bible, it's translated the effeminate, be careful, don't, this isn't like some of these people, there are some guys that have like maybe like a little bit of a feminine idiosyncrasy about them, maybe how they say things or maybe how they present themselves. They're not homosexual. That's not what is being referred to. Both of these are terms used of, for homosexuals and their behavior. And he's saying these people are what? They're outside the kingdom of God. They are not right with God. Their behavior demonstrates it. Now, homosexuality. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I, I said that I believe that the culture of Rome was actually far worse than what we're experiencing today here in the United States. And there's some people like, are you serious? How could that be? Let me help you understand the moral tenor of the Roman culture in which Paul is writing. Homosexuality was common. Right now in our country, it's novel. But it was common then. Incest was often just overlooked. Uh, some slaves were kept and abused sexually, widespread throughout the entire Roman Empire. Let me give you a little bit of picture of the leadership. When Paul is writing 1 Corinthians, the guy in power is Nero, okay? Let me help you understand a little bit about Roman culture. Uh, they are heavily influenced by Greek classical philosophers like Socrates and Plato. Socrates was a practicing homosexual. Plato, one of his students, was, was likely a homosexual. He wrote uh, the Symposium on Love, which is a treatise on glorifying homosexuality. 
14 of the first 15 Roman emperors were either practicing homosexuals or bisexual. Nero, who is actually the reigning emperor at the time that 1 Corinthians is written, and you're going to find out how radical what Paul is writing is, Nero himself was bisexual. To show you just how far gone Nero was, he actually had a boy slave by the name of Sporus, whom he had castrated so that he could marry Sporus. And Sporus would become the emperor's wife, even though he already had a natural wife. When Nero dies, this same boy that had been so abused is then passed on to another Roman emperor by the name of Otho. Uh, He only has a three-month reign, so that's probably why you haven't heard much about him. Um, Sporus, that, that kid, he commits suicide, probably right around the age of 20. This is the culture in which Paul is writing. And he's, he's, when he says this, that they're outside the kingdom of heaven, these are serious words for serious times. And he goes on to say, verse 10, nor thieves, nor the covetous, people that are craving after everybody's stuff, nor drunkards, nor revilers, people who are trying to destroy others with their words, nor swindlers, people who are extorting people, embezzling, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. You're not right with God? Your behavior demonstrates that? This isn't, this isn't to catalog all of them? It says they will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. I'll tell you, that, that is sobering news, isn't it? But I want you to see verse 11. I've got it marked I've got it underlined because, friends, this is the gospel. Look at this. But such were some of you. But you were washed. But you were sanctified. But you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Such were some of you. You were a thief. You were an idolater. You were a homosexual. You were uh, having sex outside of marriage all the time. You were a fornicator. But you came to a place where you saw Jesus for who he really is. There was a turning from sin and a trusting in Christ. And there are some radical transformations that take place for anyone who trusts in Jesus. And he lists them. Look in verse 11. You were washed, meaning that you were spiritually cleansed by God. The guilt and the dominating, dominating power of sin is over in your life. Now, you still face sexual temptation. But you are no longer mastered by it. You've been washed. But you were sanctified. It has the idea that you've now been set apart to God. In fact, he literally has placed his spirit in your life. Ephesians 1.13 says he seals us with the Holy Spirit of promise. You are marked out as one of his. You need to know something. If you truly know Jesus Christ, I'm not talking about like nominal, kind of like in name only. He's like, yeah, I'm a Christian, but you really don't know Christ. But if you, if you really do, you are truly set apart for him. And for his purposes. In fact, he's going to explain what that looks like. And you were justified. You see that? Remember when we went through the book of Romans? And we saw the beauty of justification. Where God literally pours his just wrath against sin upon his son. And the perfect life, the perfect life righteousness of Jesus. Is transferred to the account of the believing sinner. You and I, when we believe in Christ. God literally declares us right with him. Not by virtue of the fact that we cleaned up our act, which we didn't, that we're good people, we're earning God's favor. None of that, because that's impossible. Actually, God declares us right 
he declares us justified. And notice who does it. It's in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. Friends, if you are truly trusting in Christ, this is true of you. You're washed clean. You're sanctified. You are set apart. He owns you forever. You're going to spend eternity with him. And you are justified. You're declared right. Friends, this is so powerful. If there's anything that brings life to a soul, it's got to be verse 11. You and I, we stand in a long line of sinners who have been made godly because of their faith in Jesus Christ. To show you how powerful this is, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, he is actually talking about the new covenant and what takes place when you and I are believing in Christ and united with him. And he says this in Hebrews 10, 22, let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith. You completely believe this. Having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. You see, we've got a whole new identity. Our conscience, completely cleansed. Our bodies, our bodies themselves, washed with pure water. You see that? How is that possible? It's because of Jesus. You see, you and I, we're not defined by our past. We're defined by the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Uh, just about like a week ago, some of you may have listened to this on Focus on the Family. I was driving to the car to listen to this. It's a two-part series. Uh, they're doing an interview with this woman by the name of Rosaria Champagne Butterfield. She is a uh, former tenured professor of English at Syracuse University. Uh, she talks about coming from being a lesbian and active in it, in a lesbian relationship, the leader on campus for homosexual causes. And she talks about just the amazing transformation that takes place of how she comes to truly trust in Jesus Christ and what that looked like in her life. I mean, it, it is powerful. I encourage you to look there. In fact, if you're dealing with issues, family issues, homosexual uh, issues, homosexuality, you got Maybe you're concerned about one of your kids or something that's going on at work. They got a ton of resources. But this is a fascinating interview to hear about what took place in this woman's life. She uh, said this. The Bible contends, condemns two things that are interrelated about sexual sin. The Bible condemns a sexual practice apart from a biblical marriage between a man and a woman. And the Bible condemns a sexual identity that is rooted in a sinful practice. You see, what she was talking about is that you don't start with a person's sexuality. You start with their identity. She found that personhood and the fact that God created people to know him, created people in his image, meaning that we, to a limited degree, reflect the character and the nature of God. We have reason, will, love, the ability of expression, relationship. She found that to be so overwhelming and compelling and that there's a God who is so capacious and so loving. And she talks about, like, she started to see and understand that the Bible itself explains why we have just all of this disaster out there, especially in the areas of sexuality. It's because of original sin. When Adam sinned, he plunges humanity into sin. In fact, she said, original sin distorts us. 
Actual sin distracts us, and indwelling sin manipulates us. And so God loves us so much that he actually sends Jesus to literally pay the penalty for our sins so that we can once again experience what it means to be not only created in his image, but to be united in relationship with himself. And this was part of a compelling testimony in her own life. And you need to know, no matter what has taken place in your past, and if it was known, our past, like if it was just like somehow we could like see everybody's past, first of all, we'd be like in shock, right? You need to know you were cleansed. You were forgiven. You were washed clean. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you indeed you believe in him. So if you and I were going to live with sexual integrity, you know what? We have to know about our new identity. We need to rejoice in it. We need to know our identity in Jesus Christ. Let me tell you something else. If you and I are going to live with sexual integrity, we need to be pursuing purity. Look at beginning in verse 12. And he begins by saying, all things are lawful for me. This appears to be a catchphrase, certainly in Corinth. Maybe it had broader uh, realm in terms of its influence. But the idea is, all things are lawful for me. I can do whatever I want. But Paul says, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. And that was kind of the mindset. I can do whatever I want. But Paul says, you know what? When you sin... Sin owns you. It masters you. It twists you. It contorts you. You don't think correctly. You, you don't function well. What? There's a heaviness to your soul because you are literally contorting life as God designed it by the entrance of sin and you engaging in it. There are some people that perhaps uh, heard about this great liberty we have in Jesus, right? We have freedom in Christ. There is liberty in Christ. You've heard about that, right? And what happens is that some people say, well, that means I can do whatever I want because, hey, I'm saved. doesn't matter. You need to understand that God calls us to holiness and he spells it out in his word. Christian liberty doesn't mean that I'm free to do what I please. It means that I'm free to do what pleases Christ. And so he's saying, verse 12, I'm not going to be mastered by anything. And so here he says in verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And perhaps this was another popular proverb. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. The idea is, listen, just like you need food, you got an urge to eat. So what do you do? You go raid the fridge, right? It's all biological. You're just hungry, you eat. Well, that same mindset is how people see sex. Got the urges? Go get it satisfied. Go get it gratified. Doesn't matter which way, however you want to do it, right? God says, that is not correct. Sex isn't just biological. Actually, it is to be cherished. And it's got its proper place. And you need to understand something about the body. Bodies of believers and the Lord have an eternal relationship. There very well may have been some of that philosophy of dualism where the idea that the body is evil so it doesn't matter what you do with it because it's evil it's just going to go away and the spirit is good so that's the thing that's important just kind of where you're at spiritually well actually you need to understand something about the body your body is is critical to what god is doing in the future 
And he's going to spell that out. Look at verse 14. To show you how powerful the body is and that the Lord has created your body not for immorality, he says, verse 14, now God has not only raised the Lord, and that's indeed what he did, he resurrected Jesus bodily, right? But will also raise us up through his power. God is going to not only raise us up where we're with him spiritually, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but one day he is going to fit and fashion us with a body that is fit for eternity that will be forever dwelling in his presence bodily to enjoy the wonders of God, to worship him forever, to see the splendors of his universe and of his greatness, of his love and his grace forever. And we will do so in a body, a body much like Christ. And so he's saying, you've got some wrong thinking about the body. Your body is critically important. And the believer's body is for the Lord, not just for eternity, but for here and now. And so he goes on to say, verse 15, Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Don't you understand that you, when you believe in Christ, you're actually brought into his body? Not just spiritually, but your body that you've got right now? It's now a part of the body of Christ. So he says, verse 15, shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them a member, make them members of a prostitute or a foreign woman? May it never be. I know that's the culture that you live in, but that's not what God intended. God wants you to glorify him in your body. You got to pursue purity. When you, if you're a Christian and you're involved in sexual sin, some sort of sexual expression, activity, outside of marriage, you're literally dragging Christ into that. Does that thought bother you? It should. Because God is saying, you actually are designed for him. His spirit is in you. And so he says, verse 16, Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. He's going all the way back, just like he always does, back to creation. This is from Genesis chapter 2, verse 24. And what he's saying is, your body is created for God. And just like in marriage relations, the two shall become one. Well, you're engaging in sexual activity outside of marriage. You're literally dragging Christ into that. And so he says, don't you know what you're doing? Verse 16 or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, the two shall become one flesh. That doesn't mean that you're married if you have sex outside of marriage. Because really what happens is people who engage in sexual activity outside of marriage, it's like sex without responsibility. God creates sex within the, it's to be expressed within the covenant of marriage where there is responsibility. And so he lays it out here. And this was radical in the Corinthian culture. Because you remember, like, in Corinth, they had the temple to Aphrodite. Familiar with her? She is the goddess of love. She is worshipped through sex. Primarily, they, she had a thousand prostitutes that came out of their temple. This is the widespread immorality that existed within the culture in which Paul is writing. He's saying... This is not to be. You are to glorify God in your body, and let me tell you how you do it. You pursue purity. Verse 18, you flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but there's just something about sexual sin. 
but the immoral man sins against his own body. It is always better to flee than to fail. I want to tell you something. To be tempted doesn't necessarily mean that you're sinning. Some people got the idea like, oh, I've just faced sexual temptation. I must be sinning. Actually, we all face sexual temptation. You walk out those doors, it's going to happen, right? That doesn't make you a sinner. The real question is, how do you respond to the temptations? Do you engage them? Or do you like, no, okay, redirect, focus back on the Lord, and you don't go there. He says, flee immorality. If there is a situation, a relationship, uh, a place, something that's taking place that is making that temptation pretty strong, you need to what? Get out. You need to flee the situation. You need to change your scenario. If there's a relationship that's not appropriate, you need to end it and end it now. Why? Because you're not your own. You belong to the Lord. And so he says, you're not your own. Do you see that? Verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? God's Spirit literally dwells in your life, in this body. And he intends to reflect the nature of God, his holiness, through your life. Kind of like this. God the Father created our bodies. God the Son redeems us. And it's God the Spirit who indwells us and literally makes us the very temple of God. And so he says in verse 20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. And this bought with a price is kind of language from the slave market. And so what they would do is they'd have slaves and they could be purchased. You and I once were slaves to sin. True. Maybe even sexual sin. God literally has purchased us out of slavery. Well, what's the cost? For the wages of sin is what? Is death. And that's why God sends his son to literally die in our place. It's through his shed blood and our faith in him that literally releases us from the slave market of sin. You've been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. I'll tell you this. Everything that God calls us to do, he equips us to do through his spirit. And what he's doing through these verses when he's talking about sexual integrity is he's given us a vision of godliness, of holiness, of purity, of sexual integrity, where we're showing respect to others, ourself, and to God. And if you want to live with sexual integrity, well, it's right here in the text, friends. We've got to be knowing our identity We have to be pursuing purity. And finally, we need to be manifesting maturity. That's what you find in verses 7 and following. We need to manifest true spiritual maturity, especially in the area of sexuality. So we've seen a lot of where sexual expression is not to be. So where is it to be found? Well, chapter 7, you just keep reading. He talks about within the covenant relationship and friendship of marriage. So let me just, uh, again, review, where, where does sex fit in, and, and why is God consider it so holy? Let me just bring you back to Genesis 1 and 2. Remember in Genesis chapter 1, God's creating everything in the universe, and he calls everything God creates good. And God creates good things so that humanity will not fixate on the good things that God has created, but actually realize these good things are from God. It literally leads into our life. It stirs gratitude and joyful worship. If the good things in your life don't ultimately lead to worship, it leads to idolatry, that you just be fixed and focused on that. 
God wants you to see, I have given you good things, and it is to lead to worship and thankfulness in your life. So when in Genesis chapter 2, God, out of the rib of Adam, literally fashions woman. And you remember the scene in Genesis chapter 2, verse 23, after God brings Adam out of this deep sleep, after he's fashioned woman, woman, this woman, Eve, is standing before him, and he says, wow, there, at last is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And it says that the two became one flesh. And in Genesis 2.25, how chapter 2 ends, it says, and the man and wife were both naked and were not ashamed. It's based on the creation account that the Jewish people and Christians have held marriage and sexual expression in marriage as sacred and as beautiful in God's sight. Because it's spelled out right there from the very beginning. There is only one context for the expression of human sexuality, and that is the union of one man and one woman and a lifelong friendship and friendship and covenant known as marriage. So now what's taking place here in chapter 7, Paul is going to start replying to definite questions that had been asked him. So chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Now, concerning the things about which you wrote, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. So he's now replying to a particular statement that was made. There were some people, like we saw here from 6, 12 through 20, that obviously had some serious sexual morality issues. And so God's addressing that. But on the other side, we have on the other end of the spectrum, we had some folks that said, all sex is bad. I mean, it's just evil. Stay away from it. Perhaps, and you see this, people that once came from a, a particular lifestyle, they're going to run 180 degrees, and they're going to take some extreme positions because they're going to say, well, it's just protective, or I just... I just, I can't even go there. And so there were some people that were saying that all sexual expression, in marriage even, is wrong and is evil. It, they were saying it is good for a man not to touch a woman. That touch a woman is a Jewish euphemism for having sexual relationship. And so he says, now let me correct your thinking from God's way. He says, verse 2. But because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, and each woman is to have her own husband. He's going to talk about in this passage the good gifts that God gives, the good gift of marriage and the good gift of singleness. Singleness is going to come up here in a few verses. But you need to understand that marriage is good, and he says it is good for each man to have his own wife and each woman to have his own husband. Here, he clearly states that the idea of polygamy, that you have more than one wife, or the idea of homosexuality is absolutely not in keeping with God's word. God intends for one man and one woman, husband, wife, and they are united. And he is saying here that they are to, to have this relationship. You can see it here in verse 3. He says, the husband must fulfill his duty to his wife, and likewise, also the wife to her husband. You see, sexual love within the covenant of marriage, it's like building blocks. It's like a key ingredient, and it brings closeness, and it brings a unity, and, a, and there's a sense of responsibility and a oneness and a reciprocity among, among each other. However, sex can also be used as a weapon, and some people do. 
They use it to kind of fight. Like, oh, okay, well, I think we're not going to be doing that for a while. And, and literally, they try to manipulate behavior. He's saying that's not what God intended. The husband must fulfill his duty to his wife and, likewise, also the wife to her husband. And then he says in verse 4, look at this. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. And, likewise, also the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. You see, there is a mutuality in this relationship. There's a reciprocity. There is a togetherness. There's a sensitivity. There's an engagement. There's an affection there. And there's a mutuality in these relationships. Now, when Paul was writing this, to a Roman audience, this is like super foreign because most males had multiple sexual partners. And what he's saying is, no, one man, one woman, husband, wife, exclusive relationship. And this is what God has intended. This is the good gift. And so he says, that's how marriage is designed. This isn't supposed to be a complete discourse on marriage. You can look at Ephesians chapter 5 and Colossians chapter 3, where he gives other aspects of what marriage relationships, but the area of living with sexual integrity, this is how he spells it out. You need to manifest maturity, a mature mindset that's reflected in this thinking. So he says, verse 5, stop depriving one another except by agreement for a time so that you may devote yourself to prayer and come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So he says, these people that have got this mindset like, man, all sex is bad, or, well, you only have uh, a sexual relationship with your spouse because it's a necessary evil to have children, and we'll leave it at that. No, actually, it's a beautiful marriage relationship building aspect. And so he says, the only reason that you would stop having those kind of relationships is if you have mutually, do you see the text? Not like one of you like, eh, I've decided we're going to take a hiatus. No, that you mutually come to an agreement that we are going to abstain because we are now going to devote ourselves to a significant time of prayer. May even include fasting. But then he says that you come together again, and I don't want you to miss this, verse 5, so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. Satan uses this to create all sorts of destruction and havoc in relationships. He says, this is what maturity looks like. You need to manifest this kind of maturity so you will live with sexual integrity. And so he says in verse 6, but this I say by way of concession, or could be translated to make you aware, not of command. I want you to be understanding. I want you to fully comprehend what marital and sexual integrity and maturity looks like. And so he says, verse 7, Yet, I wish that all men were even as myself am. And how was Paul? Was Paul married? No. He was single. Single all his life. And notice what he says about it. However, each man has his own gift from God. One in this manner, and another in that. You need to know something. Marriage is a gift from God. Meant to be cherished. And like every gift, he to be exercised with responsibility, just like your body. It's a gift from God. You need to know something about single and singleness. It is a gift from God. You've got to be a good stewardship, good steward of the gifts that God has entrusted you. I had a lady um, after first service, and she's an older lady. She's been at church for a long time, kind of moved here not too long ago. She had never heard 
that marriage was a good gift from God. She actually thought that Paul was down on marriage. Absolutely not. He wants marriage to be lived to its fullest. It's a gift from God. And if you're a single, your singleness is a gift. Paul goes on in 1 Corinthians 7 to talk about that. You are able to devote yourself fully to the ministry of the Lord. Okay? You're not distracted by marriage and all the kids and all the other things that come up with. I mean, that's, that's a gift. But let me tell you, it's a lot of additional responsibility. If you're single, you've got a single-minded focus. And it is a gift of God. Is it hard at times? Absolutely. Does the body of Christ need to surround you? Yes. You are fully a part of the body. There's not like marriage is better or single is better. They're both good gifts of God. And that's what Paul is saying here. One has a gift to be married. One has a gift to be single. But they're both gifts. And so, friends, I tell you this. I spell this out and I was just going to read through the text because it is critical that you and I understand what sexual integrity looks like. Because the gospel goes forth as sexual integrity is lived out. Now, how do you respond to uh, people, maybe you work with them, maybe in their family, that uh, they've chosen to live outside of God's design? They act in ways in which the Bible calls sinful. How do you respond to them? Let me just put this simply. You build relational bridges. Let me tell you how you do that. You engage people with dignity. Yeah, you're probably like, well, that, that particular sin that they're engaging in, that's deplorable to me. I'm going to let them know it. I got news for you. Your sin, and I can assure your sin before you place your faith in Christ, is deplorable to somebody. But there was somebody that engaged you with dignity. You need to also speak the truth in love. Speak the truth in love. If you can't speak the truth in love, you're just like, well, I'm just a truth teller and I'm just going to tell them the way it is. You're not going to be heard. In fact, you will probably lead to more damage. Many Christians are known for being judgmental. We need to be known as truth tellers and truth tellers in love. And finally, you build relational bridges by living with sexual integrity. How? just like he spelled out in this text. You see, our goal in life is not to get people to stop sinning. That's not what our goal is. What's our goal? Our goal is for people to truly meet and trust in Jesus Christ. Our goal is that the gospel goes forth and people actually trust in Jesus. You know, God brings transformation after he first enters into relationship with the lost sinner. You don't modify behavior and clean up your act and like, okay, well, now you're presentable to God. No, you come and trust in Jesus, and God starts bringing changes. And it is a process. It's a process called sanctification, and you and I are in it. But we need to, we need to engage people like this. That's our message. We're just fellow sinners, and there is hope, life, forgiveness, and justification, and that's all found in Jesus Christ. And when people are coming out of sinful lifestyles, especially in the area of sexuality, they need to be surrounded by the body of Christ. There needs to be love, discipleship, a caring, a community, because they are in desperate need of it. And friends, I believe that this is going to be perhaps the greatest way that we're going to manifest the gospel in this upcoming time. And that is through demonstrating sexual integrity, that God's way is the best way. And so you see, the gospel goes forth as sexual integrity is lived out.